I'll stay uh, home for a while until next week when I have to go to Boise, Idaho for another college rally. And Bob Provost coming home from Boise. I guess he preached in your dad's church, Paul. Is that right? Oh, that's great. <laughs> I hope everything is still in the same shape it was before he got there. We'll, we'll trust for a great, great time. Uh, let's open our Bibles this morning. We want to continue in our series that we're looking at in Matthew chapter 5 and the Beatitudes. And I... I come to what has to be one of my very favorite of the Beatitudes, and it's a very likely possibility that we will not be able to get through this uh, look at the Beatitudes this morning in one session, and so you'll kind of have to get whatever you can and put it on hold until next time, and I think that's going to be, uh, well, whenever Russ tells me I can speak again sometime in the future. It's verse 8 in our series on the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, or the pure rather, in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I really believe that that statement encompasses one of the greatest truths in all of Scripture. And for us to just take this in one session would be an absolute travesty. For us to deal with it in two sessions is really a, a little bit unfair because it opens up to us an absolutely vast world of understanding. In fact, I dare say it would be hard in the lifetime of anyone to exhaust the significance of this tremendous statement. It stretches into so many themes and touches so many realities. But what we're going to try to do is at least grasp the intent of the Lord in saying it here and let you for the rest of your life as a Christian explore the significance of its extent. Now, as we've been looking at the Beatitudes, we've been just kind of asking a few questions, not having a formal outline as such, but, but just trying to probe into what these Beatitudes really say. So, beginningly, let me just sort of ask the question, what is the context in which Jesus says this? Everything has a context. Every conversation, every statement, articulation is in a context. And so, I want to give you a little bit of a feeling for the context, and then you'll understand the significance of what our Lord said and how it hit the people who were listening. Now remember that at the time in which Jesus spoke this, Israel was in a very depressed situation. They were depressed religiously. The true religion of Israel had given way to a false religion of rabbinical tradition. They were depressed economically because they no longer could chart their own destiny. That is to say, the Romans had come in and taken over things. Uh, they were depressed politically uh, because they no longer knew the autonomy that their own sort of national pride sought. It was a downtime. The result of that was that it was a downtime spiritually. The people really felt apart from God. From the spiritual side, they were burdened by the oppressive authority of the Pharisees who, misinterpreting the law of Moses, put upon them binding laws and rules and rituals which nobody could ever keep. And so the people lived under that relentless, rigid system of duties that were absolutely impossible to perform and consequently felt that no matter what they did, they never attained the place of pleasing God. And so here were a very religious people with a tremendous sense of national pride. And if ever they felt they had anything together, it was their religion and their relationship to God. And yet they were under such an oppressive bondage of legalism that they had no religious or spiritual satisfaction. I believe you find throughout the whole flow of the life of Christ that people continually come to Christ to ask Him how to have a right relationship to God because they knew they didn't have that. 
I think about the rich young ruler who said, how may I have eternal life? And I am reminded that this guy was the ruler of the synagogue. That's the chairman of the board of the synagogue, the most religious man in the community. And he didn't have a right relationship with God. He knew that he was substandard. And there were many, many other people like him. I think about the blind men who cried out, have mercy on us and must have been overwhelmed by their own sense of sinfulness. I think about Zacchaeus, who as an extortionist tax gatherer under the tutelage of Rome was was taking money from his people that he didn't deserve and he felt so guilty and he drew himself into a place to see Christ and when Christ came home and hit the cords of his grieving heart he said I want to make my life right and I want to pay back everybody four times remember that and so forth there was a great sense of spiritual inadequacy among the people they knew their guilt they understood their sin and the grassroots people found no deliverance in the rabbinical system of religion and so it was a time of anxiety. I think about Nicodemus, who was the leading teacher in Israel. The definite article in John 3 says he was the teacher in Israel. He comes to Jesus at night, and what is he really asking? Um, he says, you know, we know that you must be a teacher come from God because nobody could do what you do unless God had sent him. And Jesus ignores what he says on the outside and goes right to his heart and explains to him how to be what? Born again. Because that's what's aching in his heart. That's what's hurting. He does not have a right relationship to God. Even though he is religious, he knows there's no real communion. And when Jesus came into this spiritually depressed mentality, he came to a group of people with hearts that longed to know God. Not the leadership, but the grassroots people. And so they constantly posed that sort of same basic question. How can I be right with God? How can I know I'm righteous? How can I know that when I die, I'll enter the presence of God? It's always the same question. You find it in Luke, don't you? With the publican in the temple and he's down, his head is down. He won't even lift his eyes. He's beating on his breast and he's saying, Lord, be merciful to me. What? A sinner. There's just an emptiness in the life of the people of Israel at the time of Christ. God is a holy God. God is a righteous God. They are sinful people. They don't know how to hook up. So if I could just frame a sort of pervasive question that I think you find throughout the whole gospel records, it would be this. What kind of righteousness must I have in order to be accepted by God? That's really what's in their heart. What has to happen to make my life right with God? Very important, very basic question that even people today must ask if they're to get the right answer. To put it another way, how good do I have to be to have a right relationship to God? How good do I have to be? You see, the Jews had come up with a system that didn't make it in terms of legalism, so they just lowered the standard. Romans 10 says they didn't know how righteous God was. So they set a lower standard. They thought they were more righteous than they were. They thought God was less righteous than he was. And so they found common ground. But it didn't satisfy the common people because they knew their hearts weren't right. Something was missing. And so they were asking the question, how good do I have to be to be right with God? How can I make sure I'm as I ought to be in relationship to God? That's behind this. Now look at it again. 
What Jesus says in verse 8 is, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What is the standard then for a right relationship to God? It is purity of heart. It's a powerful and yet very simple statement. Jesus is speaking to the deepest issue of people. Here's what is required. If you want to know God, see God obviously means to know God because you couldn't see God because God is a spirit. And spirits have not flesh and bones, Jesus said, as you see me have. So you can't see God with the physical eye, but the idea is to know and comprehend and be related to God. It belongs to those who are pure in heart. And I asked the question, how pure? Well, pure is pure, right? Not 99 and 44, 100's percent pure, but 100 percent pure. The pure in heart see God. To understand God, to know God, to walk with God, to have a right relationship with God demands a pure heart. Now the question immediately comes, and we're going to talk about that, what's a pure heart? What's a pure heart? Here are a population of people who are saying, I want to be right with God. Christ comes along and says, well, here's the way. It is a matter of purity of heart. And so we immediately ask the second question after we've looked at the context, what's a pure heart? Well, let me back up even before we get into that for a minute. Is this anything new to them? Should this have surprised them that only the pure in heart know God? They should have known that, right? Do you remember in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks what? On the heart. That was not new. That was old stuff. In fact, Psalm 51, verse 6, David cries out in the middle of his sin, and he says in effect to God, Behold, I know that you desire truth in the inward parts. I know what you want. You want a pure heart. I know from Isaiah 59. Read Isaiah 59, how God calls for His people to have a pure heart. From Ezekiel 36, God says, I want to take away your stony heart, and I want to give you a heart of flesh, and I want to wash you with water, and I want to make you clean, and I want to put my spirit in you. And it's all about a pure heart. It's all about a cleansed heart. And you read Psalm 24. In Psalm 24, the psalmist sees himself as a, as a worshiper. And he goes to the temple like a pilgrim to the feast of Jerusalem. And his heart is thrilled as he sees Jerusalem and as he sees the temple. But as soon as he gets near the temple in Psalm 24, he is smitten with the reality that he can't even enter into the presence of God unless he has a pure heart. It's the inside. And so what Jesus is saying to these people, look, I know what your hunger is and I know what your longing is to be right with God. And I know that the people who are leading you are telling you you can be right with God by your external behavior. But I want you to know it's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of the heart. And that's always been that's always been the problem. You know, there are only two kinds of religion in the world. The one that says you can be right with God on the outside by your activity. And the other one says you can only be right with God by the change of your heart. And all false religion is predicated on the fact that God is pleased with your religious behavior. But true Christianity says, no, God is only pleased with a transformed heart, a pure heart. It's always been the pure in heart who have known God. Always. Not just now, but always. So many have missed that. Look at 1 Peter for a minute, chapter 1. Let me show you a passage there that is perhaps familiar to you. 1 Peter 1 and verse 15 says, But as he who called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of life. 
because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear, for as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your vain manner of life received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God, seeing that you have, here it comes, purified your souls. How? How did you become holy as it was required in verses 15 and 16? By obeying what? The truth. Through the power of the Spirit, resulting in unfeigned love of the brethren. And you can stop at that point. Verse 23 says you were born again. You were born again by the power of the Word of God. So the requirement of God here is that you be holy. And the actual possibility of that is made a reality by being born again through faith by the power of the Spirit. So the pure in heart then, whether you're looking at Old Testament or New, are the ones who know God. Now let's talk a little bit further about what it means to be pure in heart. Let's take the word heart for a minute. We, we know a word in English, cardiac. That's from the Greek word cardia, which is heart. Cardiac is our familiar term. And what we have here then is discussion of the cardiac system, spiritually speaking. The Lord goes right to the inside, right to the heart of the matter. The Pharisees, they were into cleaning pots and cleaning pans and washing their hands and ignored the inside. You know, uh, uh, Jesus said to them, you know, you're all washed on the outside. Remember that Matthew 23, but in the inside you're full of dead men's bones, right? You're a sepulcher, you're a grave. On the outside, whitewashed. On the inside, putrid, decaying. And that's the indication of their unclean heart. Now, what is the heart in Scripture? The heart refers to the center of a man's person, the center of a woman's person. The heart is the core of being. It is more than just your mind. It is used very often in Scripture of your mind because it says in the Bible, as a man thinks in his what? Heart, so is he. It is often used in reference to the mind, the thinking source, but always... The heart encompasses more than the mind. It encompasses the mind and what the mind activates. And what does the mind activate? Well, it activates the will and then it activates the emotion. Excuse me, the emotion. <clears throat> it activates the will and then it activates the emotion. The heart then is the mind and all that it generates in response. That's why in Proverbs 4.23 it says, Keep your heart, or guard your heart, with all diligence. You remember this one? For out of it are the issues of life. It, the idea of the heart then is the core of your person that generates your choices, your decisions, your actions, your thoughts, and your emotions. And that's why Ephesians 6, 6 says that we are to be doing the will of God from the heart. That's the seat. Now, what about our heart do we need to know? Well, Jeremiah 17 said the heart of man is deceitful above all things and what? Desperately wicked. Who can know it? Genesis 6, 5 characterized that pre-flood civilization and said of them, 
Every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. So you understand then that only the pure in heart see God, but that every person born into the world has an impure heart. And no matter what they do on the outside religiously, no matter how many religious services they go to, no matter how many candles they light, no matter how many times they bow down, no matter how many prayers they offer, no matter how many ceremonies they go through or rituals they conduct or engage in, they cannot please God unless that evil heart becomes a pure heart. That inner transformation. And that's what Jesus called for all the time all throughout his ministry. The heart must be changed. It isn't just that that's what the Lord called for. The prophets of old called for it as well. In Jeremiah, let me just read you one verse, of, if I can remember exactly which verse. Yes, uh, Jeremiah 24, 7. I will give them, God says, an heart to know me. Isn't that a marvelous statement? I'll give them a heart to know me. And as I mentioned earlier, Ezekiel 36 says that God wants to take away your stony heart and give you a new heart. You see, God knows that for anyone to have a right relationship to him, there has to be a new heart, a whole new center of personhood. That's like Romans 7, uh, that when you believed in Christ or Romans 6, really, it starts, you believe in Christ, your old life died and you've been given a new life. You die to the old life, you rise to walk in newness of life. Galatians 2.20 says the old is crucified with Christ. You now live a new life and Christ lives in you. So there has to be a total transformation of the inner man, the heart, in order for us to please God. And that includes the giving of a new and a pure heart. David experienced that, I think. David said in Psalm 57, 7, and this is a wonderful statement that every one of us ought to be able to say. He said, my heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed. What did he mean by that? He meant my heart is set on one thing. It's attached to one thing. It's stuck to one thing. And that one thing is that I should please you, that I should obey you, the heart. And you see, this was what was totally absent in the religion of Israel, just as it is today. I see religious people in all kinds of religious formats who do not have a transformed and pure heart. And all their religion is absolutely useless. Now, let's look at the word pure for a minute. What do we mean by this? Katharos. Katharos. You ever heard the word um, cathartic? That's used in medicine. Cathartic is usually, if I remember right, an agent for cleansing, an agent for cleaning, an agent for making something pure. We use the word catharsis. We say someone had a catharsis experience, a purging experience, an experience that sort of washed out a lot of old garbage. And that's where the word comes from. It, it is akin to the Latin castus, which is the root of the English word chaste, which means to be pure. It's a word that comes from katharizo to mean uh, to cleanse from any filth or any impurity. In a moral sense, it means to be free from defilement, free from sin, purified from evil. It also seems, if you do a little etymological study, that it has the idea of unmixed. 
pure in the sense of no mixture. It is unalloyed. It is unadulterated. It is used for uh, sometimes corn that has been winnowed and sifted and cleansed of all chaff, and all you have left is the pure. And we can emphasize that idea that it is unmixed. I think that's a good emphasis. What it means is that the heart that pleases God is an undivided heart. There's no duplicity. There's no double mindedness. There's no division. Uh, Jeremiah 32:29 says, and I will give them. I love this one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. Not double heart, not a little bit for God and a little bit for this, not a preoccupation with sin as well as a concern for God. But one heart and one way, says Jeremiah 32:29. That I, I think is spiritual integrity. Spiritual integrity. Psalm 78 says he fed them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. Speaking uh, from David, integrity basically means single mindedness, unmixed. It's a total commitment. Singleness of heart. Uh, didn't James say a double minded man is what? Unstable in all his ways. And Jesus, I believe, in Matthew 6, called for singleness of heart. If you look over Matthew 6 in the familiar passage, verse 19, he tells them to put all their treasure in heaven. Verse 21 says, because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And then in verse 24, he says, and you better focus on one thing because no man can serve what? Two masters. So... The word katharos, the pure heart, can mean an undivided heart. It can mean a single heart where there is only one life purpose and everything is focused on God. As in Psalm 16 where David says, I have set the Lord always before me. I have set the Lord always before me. He is the focus of everything. But I think it's more than that. It's more than just a single heart. It is a pure heart. It's more than just motive. It's action. It does speak of a pure heart. You remember what David prayed after his sin in Psalm, uh, Psalm 51, after he sinned with Bathsheba? He said, Create in me what kind of a heart? A clean heart. O oh God. David had a single pure motive toward God, and I believe he sought also to have a single, or uh, rather a pure heart. Not just a single heart, but a pure heart. So, summing it up simply, when we say God calls for a pure heart, He means a heart of total devotion to Him and a heart that is free from sin. Now, that's not an easy thing. In fact, for you and me, that's an impossible thing. No man in and of himself and no woman in and of herself can create in herself a pure heart. And so here you find again what our Lord is saying. Here is a standard that you can't meet. You have to have an absolutely pure heart. To know God. He's saying this to people who are religious up to their proverbial ears. But he's saying it's all useless if the heart isn't right. And the heart that is pure is the only heart that pleases God. Now let's go a little deeper into that. When we say a pure heart, what kinds of purity are we talking about? Well, let me give you what I guess maybe might be a little summary. Five kinds of purity of heart. Okay, this is a little grocery list you can write down. Five kinds of purity of heart. Just so we kind of zero in on what we're talking about. Um, first of all, let's call it primitive purity. Primitive purity would be the human heart 
as it was originally created. In other words, in its basic creation, the human heart was as pure as pure can be. No sin. Pure. Primitive purity. Now let's talk about a second kind of purity. I'll just give you four. I'll condense a little. The second is, um, cre uh, let's call it uh, ultimate purity. There was that primitive purity of man before the fall, and there is that ultimate purity of man after God restores him. This will belong to the saints in glorification when we will be like Jesus Christ, for we shall see him as he is. We will be as holy as God is. We will be so holy we can stay in heaven forever and never be thrown out. We are so holy we can sit on the throne of Christ and the throne of the Father. We are so holy we can live in the Father's house. Absolute, total perfection. That is ultimate purity. So we have this primitive purity before the fall. We have ultimate purity in what Milton called paradise regained. Then the third thing would be in the present, in between those two times where sin has stained the world, we have in Christ a positional purity. We have in Christ a positional purity. And that is to say that when you became a Christian, now mark this, God imputed to you the purity of Christ. Is that not so? He gave you the righteousness of Christ. I mean, that's Romans 3, Romans 5. The righteousness of Christ. Now, when you look at John MacArthur, you say, is John MacArthur pure in heart? The answer is, in the positional sense, before God I am. Why? Because Christ has bestowed upon me his own purity before God. Isn't that marvelous? So that when God sees me, he sees me in Christ. When he sees me, he sees me perfect in Christ, in that positional sense. When he sees me, he sees me as holy as his own son, who is not, Hebrews says, even ashamed to call me brother. Now, that is the only way that you or I or anyone else could ever be pure in heart in this life would be to have God impute that purity to us or credit it to us. In a sense, he, he clothes us in it so that when God looks at us, he sees not our own stained garment, but the garment of the righteousness of Christ. And so we are given purity of heart, and that's a wonderful thing. That is the great gift of God. If those people, by the way, had come in a beatitude mindset, poor in spirit, realizing their spiritual bankruptcy, if they had come mourning over their impurity, if they had come meek because they had offended an infinitely holy God, if they had come hungering and thirsting after righteousness, if they had come seeking for mercy, all those prior beatitudes, they would have received the purity of heart that God demanded, right? That's the issue. God says of me and you and everyone else, I demand purity of heart. I demand what you can't give. And it isn't until you're bankrupt in your spirit and know you don't have it that you'll begin to hunger and thirst after it and come to Christ and, and receive it. That's positional purity. And I, I thank God that that's the thing that guarantees my eternal salvation, right? Listen, you're not saved because you keep from sinning. Is that right? Because you can't keep from sinning. You're saved because the perfect righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you. But finally, and fourthly in our little list, there is practical purity. And when I say that God desires the pure in heart, and then that God in Christ by His grace makes you pure in heart positionally, I do not mean that that means God doesn't care about your practical purity. Because He does. 
I don't believe there's any such thing as imputed righteousness without a demonstrated righteousness. I don't think salvation is just forensic. That is, God says it so and not actual. I think there will be in the life of a believer a pure heart. You say, well, why do I do things that are wrong? Because you have the flesh and you have to deal with it. But if you want to know whether you have a pure heart, first of all, you look to the Word of God and you say, when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, God says positionally He gave me a pure heart, so I know I have one. But there's a second aspect. I know I have a pure heart because when I look deep into myself and I look at the very deepest desires that I have, those desires are to please the Lord. Does that sound familiar? I don't always do that. You don't always do that. But when I sin, I have regret. How about you? Do you have great regret when you don't sin? Do you say, boy, I went through a whole day and didn't even get to sin. What a bummer. Well, that's how the world is. That's how the world is. They run to do evil, the psalmist said. They're in a mad rush to do evil. They fill up their life with sensual fulfillment. Show me a believer and I'll show you somebody who when he does that feels terrible because it violates the purity that's really there in his heart. I only wish that I could make my flesh conform to the deepest desires of myself, desires planted by the Spirit of God. So there is a, a primitive created purity. There is an ultimate purity. In the middle here where we are, there's a positional purity. Uh, and there's also a practical one. And I think you can do an inventory on your own life and you can thank God on the one hand that because you put your faith in Christ, He imputed righteousness to you. And you can also thank Him on the other hand that because He gave you an imputed righteousness, you received also an actual righteousness which creates within you the desire to do what is right. And you, be you become the person, is this not true, who most hates his own sinfulness. It's the pure in heart. So it's those kind of people who enter into God's kingdom. Those who have a pure heart. Who have received a pure heart in receiving the righteousness of Christ and who actually experience a heart that longs to do what is pure and right. That comes through the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is the promise attached? Let's look back at our verse. What are the pure in heart get? Well, they get blessing. And how so? Because they see God. They see God. Literally, it's a present tense indicative. They, uh, rather a um, future indicative. They shall be continually seeing God for themselves. Marvelous thought. In other words, it means that from now on out, we commune with the living God. And that gnawing hunger in the heart of the Jewish people of that time could be satisfied. You could know you were right with God. You could know God. You could walk with God. You could experience God. The wonder of the pure in heart is that they know God. Isn't that a marvelous thing? I mean, I, I hear people who tell me from time to time, well, I know this person, and I know this person, and I know this person, and, and I always think to myself in a situation like that, well, I know God. And I know him very well. And not only that, he knows me. <laughs> He knows me. Moses begged. Exodus 33:18. Show me your glory. David, Psalm 42, As the deer pants after the water brook, so pants my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsts for thee, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Oh, how much the 
the heart of man wants to see and know God. You remember what um, Philip said to Jesus in John 14? Show us the Father. We want to know God. That's the cry of the human heart. And the ones who are pure in heart, they do know God. What a tremendous, tremendous gift. You see, the purity of heart, in a sense, if we can follow the metaphor, the purity of heart cleanses the heart so that it can see clearly. It cleanses the vision of the soul to see and know God. How do you receive that cleansing? Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you put your trust and faith in Him, receive Him as Savior. Acts 15.9 says, purifying the heart by faith. Purifying the heart by faith. You put faith in Jesus Christ, your heart is purified, the vision of your soul is made clear, and you really see God. And you walk with Him and you know Him. Do you have that sense in your heart? Do you have that sense of longing to do what is right? you have that overwhelming joy of knowing that you know the living God? If you have a pure heart, you do. You say, well, what if I'm a Christian and, I mean, I'm kind of disobedient. Will I lose that? Yeah, I think so. I think um, you can cloud your vision again and miss the real vision of God by sin in your life. What do you do? Well, you look to the Word. You ask the Spirit of God to control your life. You stay away from the unfruitful works of darkness. Pray. Get with Christian people to strengthen and support you. All those good spiritual duties you just restore and put in the center of your life. But it's such a wonderful thing to know that we are the pure, made pure by Christ, given pure desires and pure longings and pure motives and even pure deeds, though they're not all as pure as they ought to be. And the promise attached to us is that we shall now and forever know God intimately, see Him clearly, and ever so more clearly as we enter into His presence. Now, what I'm going to do is try to wrap this up because it is a couple of weeks before I can come back. So let me do this. Let me just give you a little checklist, okay, as I've tried to do with each of these at the end. What are the signs of an impure heart? What are they? And you can do a little inventory here. Number one, an impure heart is ignorant. Ignorant. You see, impurity obscures the truth. You can't love the truth. You can't even know the truth. It just sort of escapes. Or maybe you're even indifferent to it. I mean, do that little inventory in your heart. Do you have a love for truth? Do you have a longing to know the truth of God? Sometimes for me it's so overwhelming that it's almost hard to contain. The desire to know the Word of God. To know the truth of God. But an impure heart, not that desire won't be there. And maybe it means you're not a Christian. Maybe it means you're a Christian, but you've really let your heart get clouded up with sin. And sin will always obscure the truth, and you will lose your love for the truth. And there will be all kinds of things that you will have a stronger appetite for, other than the truth of God. Secondly, an impure heart will be self-centered. It will say with those in Revelation 3.17, I have uh, 
I am rich and I have need of nothing. It'll be self-centered, self-sufficient. It doesn't have that deep desire to depend on God. Thirdly, an impure heart will seek sin. It will seek sin. It will have pleasure in unrighteousness. It will love darkness, not light. And even though it might be externally constrained because it's at the master's college, it will, in a sense, fight against that. And given the first opportunity, it will blow out of that constraint. I mean, you can ask yourself a very simple question. You've already anticipated the end of the year, right? And as the year ends, what is it that you are looking forward to doing when you leave here? That's a pretty good test on where you are spiritually. What is the longing of your heart? What is it that you want to get to that you've maybe been deprived of? You see, the, the impure heart is ignorant of truth, self-sufficient, and it seeks sin. Fourthly, the impure heart is characterized by unbelief. It is called in Hebrews 3.12 an evil heart of unbelief. It doesn't believe God's word. It doesn't believe God knows best. It is unbelieving. It is not interested in committing itself to the claims of Scripture. And then fifthly, an impure heart obviously hates purity. It's like uh, it's like the the bugs under the rock. When you lift the bug, when you lift the rock up, the bugs burrow into the ground. They don't want the light. Men love darkness rather than light, and they head for the darkness. And an impure heart hates purity. You take an impure heart, put it in an environment like this, and it has a very difficult time. I've heard recently about a student here who is very critical of the school, very ungracious, unkind uh, toward me, toward our church, toward you, toward faculty, toward many people. And someone said to me, um, uh, why, why has that person developed that attitude? What has happened at the school to cause that? I said, nothing's happened at the school to cause that. There are some people who hate purity because they're not pure. And that only reflects where they are. I understand that everything isn't the way it should be. It's not that way in my house, in my life. It's not that way here, but by God's grace, we seek purity. And if you don't, you might be uncomfortable probably will be. Fools hate knowledge, Proverbs 1.29 says. Micah 3.2 says there are haters of purity. So an impure heart is ignorant of truth, has no love for it, is self-sufficient, seeks not to lean on God, seeks sin, is unbelieving, and basically hates purity, and so runs from it, lest they be exposed. But let's turn it around, finally, and ask the question, what are the signs of a pure heart? little inventory here. What are the signs of a pure heart? Number one, I love this, sincerity. Sincerity. So basic. A man in whose spirit there is no guile, Psalm 32.2, like Nathaniel. Really honest, sincere heart. Great integrity. Boy, I tell you, I love integrity. A friend of mine from Sweden told me a good illustration of integrity one time. He said, integrity is, is like making bread. 
He said, I don't know how to make bread, and he didn't either, but this is what he said, and I'll pass it on to you. It might not make very good bread, but this is the ingredients that he gave. You take a flour, does that sound right? Water, salt, a little butter, and anything else you want to throw in to make it whatever kind of bread you want. And he said, if you just take a bowl, and maybe you put some eggs in it if you want to have a special kind of bread, you throw in the flour, the water, the salt, the butter, whatever, the eggs, just take that pan like it is and stick it in the oven. What are you going to get? Absolutely nothing. He said, the thing you have to do is stir it. You've got to mix it all up until every part touches every other part. Then it makes bread. That's integrity. Integrity in a life is when every part of your life touches every other part. So that nothing happens inconsistent with who you are. See, Nothing happens out of character. If I say I love God, then everything I do touches that. If I say I love you, everything I do touches that. If I say I want to serve God, then everything in my life touches that. So that there's integrity. Marvelous thing. Maybe the most desirable of all human qualities. A man who says he believes and who lives what he believes. That's a pure heart. There's integrity there. Sincerity. One and the same. Secondly, and these are obvious, the second sign of a pure heart is a hunger for greater purity. A hunger for greater purity. A dissatisfaction. I, I think of it as the blessed dissatisfaction. Now that kind of a person will cry out with uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Remember that Paul used the plural pronoun, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh. And somebody might say, well, Paul, do you really have a problem with the filthiness of the flesh? And he would answer, yes. He didn't say, I used to be the chief of sinners. He said, I am. There is a desire for greater purity. So look at your heart. Is that your longing? Is that your real hunger? Or are you in a position where you just want to be impure as fast as you can? Or that isn't even an issue with you. Thirdly, another mark of a pure heart is a hatred of all sin. Not only personal sin, but all sin. The psalmist says in Psalm 119.104, as he extols the virtues of Scripture, he sets Scripture on one side, and then in that 104th verse he says, I hate every false way. I hate every false way. Because I love so much that which is pure, I hate so much that which is impure. A pure heart then has integrity a hunger for greater purity and a hatred of all sin. Fourthly, I believe a pure heart avoids all appearance of evil. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 avoids all appearance of evil. It so hates evil that it not only doesn't want to do evil, but doesn't want anybody to think it might be doing evil. I'm sensitive to that. I hope you are. It isn't just that I don't want to do what is wrong. I don't even want anybody to think I might have done what is wrong. So I avoid that appearance, if at all possible. Fifthly, people with pure hearts love people with pure hearts. They have a love for other pure-hearted people. That's what 1 Timothy talks about, chapter 6, love out of a pure heart. Those whose hearts are pure then have integrity or sincerity. They hunger for greater purity. They hate sin. They avoid appearances of evil. And they love others with hearts that are pure. Um, that's the old uh, adage, birds of a feather, what? Flock together. 
You can tell a man by his friends. You can tell a girl by her friends, right? Show me who you associate with and I'll tell you about your spiritual life. Sure, it's easy. Just I just watch and see who you like to be with. If you have a pure heart, then you will love to be with people who have what? Pure hearts. It's basic. If you have a pure heart, you will not love to be, people, to be with people who don't have pure hearts. And then, sixth, I'll throw one more in. I believe people with a pure heart are preoccupied with worshiping God. There's a focus in their life, a wonderful focus on God. They are concerned about His holiness. They would say, with David's zeal for your house has eaten me up. With Jesus, they would want to cleanse the temple in a sense that defiled their wonderful God. They are preoccupied with God. They live in the sense of awe that God has loved them and given Himself for them and saved them and become their God and poured out eternal blessing on them. These are the pure in heart. And it's my prayer, as always, for my own heart and for the hearts of all that God puts into my life, including you precious people here, that we shall know the experience of pure hearts. Let's bow in prayer. Just while your heads are bowed for a minute, I um, got into the airport last night to, to leave Canada. And there was a girl at the counter taking the tickets and assigning the seats. And I walked up and she said, um, I'm sorry, you can't check in, sir. And the girl on the next counter at Air Canada said, Oh, yes, you can. Come over here, sir. I went over and she said, uh, How can I help you? And I said, Well, I just want to check in for my flight. And um, it is a little early, but I hoped I could do that. And she said, Of course you can do that. And she checked me in and she talked. And I said to Patricia a few minutes later, I said, I just met the most gracious person with the sweetest disposition. And she was so helpful. It's really remarkable. Later on, we got on to go through customs, and she was there again. And she said to me, she said, by the way, she said, someone just told me that you're John MacArthur and you're on the radio. And I listen to you every day. And she said, I want you to know that I'm a brand new Christian. And it has totally transformed my life. Well, we almost missed our flight talking to her. her name is Anya. Lovely girl. And she went on and on about her transformed life, transformed life, new desires, new desires, new thoughts, new goals, new experiences. And she couldn't help but share the wonder of it all and how that she was first saved and recently her husband as well. And if ever I saw at first hand a person with a pure heart, it was her. You could just see the radiance of Christ in her life. What a refreshment she was. And as we talked, a little crowd gathered because we were right in the middle of the customs area and other Christians began to show up. And there we were in the Calgary airport praising the Lord Jesus Christ with about a half a dozen Christians. A customs agent, a family on a trip somewhere, a ticket agent, this girl, myself, my wife, just rejoicing in the Lord, all having in common that Christ, by His grace, had purified our hearts and she said to me, you know, I see everything differently in my whole world now. 
because I know God. What a privilege. What a joy. I hope you haven't lost that sense of joy that a new Christian has when they understand that because God has given them a pure heart, they see Him so clearly. A wonderful, wonderful privilege. Father, thank You for our day. We anticipate in this day that somehow, in some way, we can be used for Your glory. Even if it's only the quiet worship of our own hearts, confession of sin, even if only the expressions of love inwardly, the acts of obedience outwardly. And perhaps, Lord, to speak to someone else to bring the truth of Christ to them. Whatever it is you have for us today to give you glory, we do it with eagerness and thankfulness for the Savior's sake. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.